Welcome back to part two of Nothing Never Happens and the interview with Dr. Z. Nicolazzo on trans pedagogies. You've mentioned uh, social justice education, and um, you write about this in your book um, uh, about um, diversity and social justice education um, trickling up. Mm-hmm. and not trickling down, that uh, trans people of color, disabilities, poverty, underdocumented, um, et cetera, that there is uh, a new approach and there's, there's a need to reconceptualize college environments around this. Um, so could you talk about when you're, you know, your commitment to social justice education um, and this trickling up. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a great ideal and um, uh, a utopian concept, right? But how mm-hmm. do you, um, uh, you know, make that road by walking it? Yeah, I think part of this has to do with, um, and, and actually I can even draw on some thinking that I was doing with students at Agnes Scott last year when I visited campus. Um, oh, it really yeah. has to do with uh, thinking about liberation across marginalized populations. So instead of thinking about what is it that we're gonna do for trans rights on Monday, and then on Tuesday, we're gonna think about students with disabilities, and then on Wednesday, we're gonna think about students of color. How is it that we can focus on the most vulnerable students on our campuses Mm -hmm. and recognize that any rights or access that we gain for that vulnerable population will inherently trickle up. Mm -hmm. And that when we think about our most vulnerable students, we're likely thinking about students with multiple marginalized identities. And so that helps us kind of broaden out our understanding and, and think that, well, we can't really do trans liberation work without doing work around, you know, uh, resisting anti-blackness and resisting racism in the academy and that we can't do trans liberation work without doing liberation work for people with disabilities right and so all of a sudden we start kind of having bringing together these populations to think about what, what do we need to do to create a movement together across our identities and across our experiences um, yeah. I think there's a there's a really easy example to think of. And I'm, I'm, I, I know that bathrooms are a really kind of common thing to talk about when we talk about trans people and experiences. So please forgive me for using this as an example, but it is, it is quite an easy and, and simple one. So a lot of people say that, you know, oh, well, uh, the creation of all gender restrooms on campus is really just a trans issue. And so why should we have to do something for just a small percentage of students, right? This is some pushback that I oftentimes hear. Um, But the reality is that, you know, 
when we think about all gender restrooms and, and really when we think about the ideal, which is single stall lockable restrooms, that that's mm -hmm. something that not only benefits trans people, it benefits people with disabilities, it benefits people who have chronic illnesses, it benefits people who want any semblance of privacy and security, it benefits people who are concerned about safety on campus because a sex segregated multi-stall restroom with a sign out front does not a lock make, right? And so all of a sudden we start to realize that there are various populations, families, right? Um, family, like, uh, family members with young kids. Um, there are all these populations that are present on our college campuses that would benefit from this type of facility that is often discussed or kind of chided as oh, well, that's just a trans issue. Um, and, yeah. and so if we can think across those populations, right, then we realize that we're gaining access for lots of people and even the people who already had access or already felt comfortable in their restrooms, well, they're not going to be negatively impacted by the creation of all gender restrooms. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the trickle up approach. And that's how I think we can start to think across populations. I, I think that there are, um, there are lots of possible ways that we could think about this. I think especially in, in a particular era when we are getting less and less funding in higher education, um, whether that be, would that be for student affairs programs and services or academic departments, then we can start thinking very creatively about how we share resources and how we share work and labor. Um, yeah. You know, I think I, I think the trans studies initiative that I'm a part of at the University of Arizona is a perfect example of an interdisciplinary working group. We're not all housed in the same college or in the same department or in the same program. Um, we're across the university. And this is a way for us to think about how do we create an interdisciplinary academic experience for students to engage in this mm -hmm. thing that we call transgender studies. Um, and, and I think it's a response to, um, well, a lot of things, but partially I think it's a very smart response to the ongoing realities of um, a continued decrease in funding and a continued lack of, um, lack of desire on behalf of state and local and federal governments to engage with the humanities, specifically gender, women's studies, trans studies, right? A number of the fields that many of us are, are a part of. Yeah, and <clears throat> this gets to, you know, institutional um, priorities. I mean, there's, you know, the setting of priorities in STEM and whatever else, and then mm -hmm. also pushback. Um, and it depends on the institution. Uh, small, for a lot of small liberal arts colleges, especially if they are uh, founded by religious institutions, it, you know, and that there's a continuum of, you know, ongoing involvement in that and how much control those institutions mm -hmm. have, uh, and then cultural, social, you know, um, mm -hmm. but there can be um, a pushback that is not always visible, um, mm -hmm. and, um, and, there, and or spoken uh, at the same time having these safe zone trainings, you yep. know, is there any real systemic change? Yeah. Uh, representation on the board of trustees, um, by, you know, um, not just non-trans people <laughs> and mm -hmm. not just wealthy people, but maybe a custodian who's been there for yeah. you, you know. Um, uh, but that, 
you know, stretches the boundaries of of sort of the status quo of, of how these higher ed education institutions operate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the that's the real trouble with this shift that we've seen in terms of thinking about higher education as a business. Um, you know, because educational models were never meant to be business models, right? Um, and and also, I think this is um, this is the the kind of press and and really the pushback that we're seeing against what I think has been an ongoing drive towards the recognition of social justice work on college campuses. That if we look at the history of higher education, it was always created at first as kind of a um, a bastion for what was a finishing school, right? For for rich white elite boys. Um, and, and now we're trying to see a push against that and thinking about liberalizing education so that it's a public good. Um, and, and so I, I think we're seeing some pretty strong pushback from that. And I'm, um, you know, uh, I try to remain hopeful for more days than, than I'm hopeless about. Um, but, but I think that this is a real kind of testing point for higher education, um, particularly with the current administration. Um, although really, ever since the Reagan era, we've been giving less in terms of federal support to institutions of higher ed. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, what is your dream for the next five years uh, in terms of pedagogies and uh, in you know your institutional context? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and one that I'm probably going to have to answer in the next couple of years as I go up for a tenure. Um, so I'm glad to be thinking about this now. Um, you know, I think my long-term goals um, really have to do with sustainable movement building and sustainable um, mechanisms through which we can um, kind of articulate a broader vision um, for whether it's just trans studies or thinking about um, uh, transforming higher education and doing that with a particular kind of gender liberation perspective. Um, I, I'm a big believer in um, doing work in community. Um, I certainly have, have written and, and do some work solo, um, but I find that most of my best thinking happens when I'm in community, and so I'm really, really committed to trying to find ways to think together and to, to kind of um, bring all this work, much of it that I don't even really know about yet, um, that's happening um, by other trans and gender nonconforming people to think about how we can kind of centralize that and think about what are we doing that's really great, what are some areas that we might be missing? And how do we maybe need to work together to, to fill those gaps? Um, and, and my real hope, too, um, is to think about how we can, I mean, I, I, I really do, I go back to Bell Hooks's work constantly, this Teaching to Transgress book that she wrote in 1994. Um, mm -hmm. I really do want to continue to think alongside my other faculty peers about how is it that we can create educational environments as a practice of freedom. How is it that we can think about our classes that way? How is it that we can think about our programs and our disciplines and our colleges that way? Um, I certainly don't think I have the answers yet. I think that I have glimpses of moments where I do it, um, but I am very young in my career and certainly have a lot to learn. Um, 
and and I think students have a lot to teach us too um, about this. So so yeah, those are some of my longer term goals. If those make sense and are yeah. modeled, yeah. Thank you for sharing those. Um, well, I want to ask about something in a syllabus. This there's a segue here somewhere. Um, <laughs> your equity, inclusion, and social justice in higher education. Um, there's also some self-interest um, and around, um, you know, you being a scholar activist. Um, you have, uh, and I want to figure out how to get this to happen at my institution because we're sort of heading in this direction, but you have a, you know, the, the requisite stuff in the syllabus um, and, you know, act accessibility and um, respect for diversity, academic integrity, technology, blah, blah. Okay, and then you have uh, basic needs security statement. Mm. If you have difficulty affording groceries or accessing sufficient food every day or lack a safe and stable place to live at any point throughout our course, and you believe this may affect your performance in the course, I urge you to contact the Dean of Students for support. Uh, furthermore, please notify as your instructor if you are comfortable in doing so. This will enable me to provide any resources that I may possess. I would also encourage you to make use of the Husky Food Pantry as you need. Um, we have started because of stories of and realities of food insecurity and um, housing insecurity. Mm, we haven't really worked on the housing insecurity yet. But because of the food insecurity and some other things, we have started um, uh, a free store. Mm -hmm. um, we also have an employee um, emergency fund through our living wage campaign. Um, but uh, I wanna, want you to talk about uh, the origins of that statement and what was in place institutionally and whether you have it or not at Arizona. Um, yeah. I know Northern Illinois. Um, I think it's a, a fantastic thing to have in a syllabus and I had it just kind of like it's something I've been working on but I never thought put it in a syllabus you know mm -hmm. um, yeah so so that that statement is all credit to Dr. Sarah Golder Grob at Temple University um, wow. so she wrote a piece on medium um, probably I think about a year and a half ago at this point maybe two years ago um, sharing this basic needs statement. Um, and um, I found it, um, someone had posted it, I think on Twitter, maybe she posted it on Twitter and I saw it on her Twitter thread and um, I loved it and I found it really important. Um, and so I've used it on my syllabi ever since. I mean, what we, what we know from very current reporting and, and Dr. Goldrick-Robb is doing a lot of this work through um, her Hope College Foundation and, and the work that she's continuing to do at Temple now. Um, but what we know is that more, more students are, are coming to our college campuses and are taking classes that um, are dealing with food insecurity and housing insecurity. Um, yeah. And so we see more college pantries popping up around the country. Um, we see more residential life offices um, holding spaces in case students get evicted or are homeless. Um, and so there's some there's some response on behalf of student affairs educators to these needs. And yet I'm not sure we know exactly what the breadth of the need is because some students feel either embarrassed or concerned or worried or or um, 
think that if they say something in class that it might negatively influence their grade. Um, and so the syllabus is just one, I think, very easy way of signaling a willingness and a desire to work alongside students with various different needs and challenges. Um, I think it also recognizes the reality that um, many of our students, unfortunately, are living. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it, seems, it seemed to me to be a very kind of powerful statement, and I'm really thankful to Sarah that, that she's continued to remind people to use that semester after semester. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's passed along to me, hopefully. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but I need some institutional support first. Yeah, um, yeah. So some organizing and, as you mentioned before, mo movement building. Um, mm -hmm always takes movement building because you know that that back to that base social justice um, trickles up yeah well and I think too that if there's nothing on either your campus or any of your other listeners campuses um, something that I think is really important is to think about like what's going on in our local communities um, are there food pantries in our communities are there ways that we can work with students to gain access to food stamps um, are there other kinds of social safety nets and, and um, social services that we can tap into with our students um, and i think that that becomes really important i, I know lots of of graduate and doctoral students who are on food stamps because of the real low pay that, that they get. Um, and so, you know, I think that even if our even if our campuses don't have some of these things, I think there are ways we can engage with our local communities um, who may have them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know you do a lot of uh, consulting and, and talks and, and publications. Um, and I wanted to mention a webinar that's coming up on October 30th uh, for the uh, Education Professional Society. Uh, and it's called Beyond Binaries, Querying Notions of Gender and Sexuality in Academia. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, this podcast will, that the webinar will have occurred before my podcast comes out. Hmm. Um, uh, because there are some underdocumented students who are coming in first. Um, but uh, could you talk about, you know, what you're seeing on in your travels um, and uh, how the professional society, and this is, I think, the graduate students, uh, which makes sense, how the professional society is, uh, societies you're a part of are beginning to become more inclusive and open to these issues? Um, I would say that, oh gosh, how do I answer that question? There are some people who um, probably don't even need me to come to their campuses, right? Those are the people who sit in the front row and nod along with me and have yeah. really been, I think, committed to um, doing different and doing better for years. Um, and then there are always some people who are just not really going to be interested, right? Those are folks who probably don't even enter the room, right? Um, yeah. And you often, I mean, you're probably familiar with these folks, right? You, you often hear about them like, oh, I really wish so-and-so would have come. They really need to hear this kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, like, I think, 
I think, unfortunately, there are always going to be those folks. I think that we, the best we can do is just continue to, to keep on trying and offering, right, to, to see how we might be able to engage those folks. But, but really, the, the bulk of people who um, will come to either talks that I give or the type of webinars that you're talking about are, are you know, curious folks who I think mean well but are really struggling with how it is to put their espoused beliefs into practice because they think, well, maybe my institution doesn't support me, maybe there's too much risk for me, maybe I have desire but I don't have the know-how in order to like translate it to practical application. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I go around the country and, and I'm talking with different people, I'm really trying to focus on that middle chunk of folks that maybe are just checking something out. Um, maybe they want to try something, but like they're, I think they're, their heart is in the right place, but they might be really concerned about the implications for them. Um, and I can appreciate that. I remember that I was there at one point too. Um, you know, when I was a, a young educational administrator, I was worried sometimes about rocking the boat or what does that mean in terms of job security, all that kind of stuff. I think what I try and move these folks toward, though, is this question that I've, that I've started asking more and more, which is for folks with, with privilege in the room, and, and I include myself, right, as someone who is white, as someone who um, very much passes as not having any disabilities, and as someone who has extreme educational privilege um, and having a terminal degree, yeah. I ask people out loud, what are we willing to risk in the name of justice? What are we willing to give up in the name of liberation? Because those of us with dominant identities need to recognize that we have to be willing to give things up, right? We have to be willing to give up our comforts. We have to be willing to give up some of our time. Um, and, and I think that we all make different risks based on our situation. I'm not saying that, you know, people listening to this podcast should go out and, you know, like, quit their jobs or, or anything like that, right? But like, we need to think about like what we're, what we're able to risk in order to, to move things further towards liberation. Um, yeah. and, and I think that that question is really resonating with people and it's helping them push past this, um, I think well-meaning but misplaced kind of savior mentality that some folks may have. I wanna help save those poor insert marginalized group of students here um, and moving them more towards oh we're in this together i need to be willing to risk things this is why i should care about this as well um, mm -hmm. so one one really quick example that i'll give um, when i was in my second year um, as, a, as a practitioner it was actually my first year um, as a practitioner at the university of arizona i worked here um, and from 2007 to 2011 before I left to get my PhD. Um, and I was working um, in campus health and I was doing um, sexual violence prevention work. I was the only person doing sexual violence prevention education on a campus of 40,000 plus students. Um, wow. And I had money stripped from my budget um, by upper level administrators in campus health to help plug budget short gaps in other mm. places. 
Now, the money that was taken from me was money that was donated year after year from students who put on the vagina monologues and all the proceeds that they got were given to, to our office to do violence prevention education work, which was fantastic. Um, but that, that money was taken away. Um, and at the time, I was with a partner who was also working. And so I remember kind of walking into a meeting with the executive director and the CFO of Campus Health, mm -hmm. asking them to explain why they took the money they gave some very bad responses, things like, well, you know, you hadn't been using it for a number of years, so we thought you wouldn't use it. Or, yeah. um, you know, what else did they say? Well, you know, because, because this is a, a centralized budgeting model that we use, it's, it's our prerogative to take the money to fill short gaps. And so what I said was, um, okay, well, I'm gonna write a letter to the Daily Wildcat, which is our um, newspaper on campus. Um, and I'm, it's gonna be an open letter to the Daily Wildcat and to the student organization that has donated this money to our office for the past six to eight years. And I'm gonna let them know what you're doing with this money because it's their money that they've given to us for specific reasons. And I think they deserve to know as does the campus community. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me and they said, no, you're not gonna do that. And I said, I said, no, actually, I think that's the best thing for me to do. Um, mm -hmm. Now, they ended up giving us our money back. Um, but at that point in time, I had kind of weighed things out. And I thought, okay, I'm willing to risk being fired. One, because I can do that, right? My partner had a job. Um, two, I had a master's degree at the time. So I could have easily found other employment, right? I was highly employable. Um, I'm also white, right? So I benefit from, from racial privilege as well. Um, so, so those are the types of risks I think that people need to make, some calculated risks they need to think about. Um, I talk with students often about being tempered, being tempered radicals and thinking mm -hmm. about how they can be radicals in their own ways, in their own spaces to, to agitate for change. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks. Um, so if we don't risk, we don't create anything, says Paulo Freire, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and I would agree. Yeah. Well, we're getting near time, and I wanted to, to ask you if there's anything else that you'd like to, to leave us with. Um, gosh, I mean, I, the only things that I can think about are, um, you know, certainly to reiterate, right, that um, social justice and, and liberation work is, very much a goal and a process. And so um, I, I think that that is increasingly important in times like now, um, in our current political climate, to think about the fact that um, things might not be going so well for a number of us with marginalized identities. Um, there might be some very real and material consequences um, for living our lives as we are um and yet right we wake up every day and we have the ability to band together and to continue working in our communities and in our localized spaces to to make the worlds and the the spaces that we need um you know and and so i think that there is um there's always time for what um what dr duncan andrade has um 
termed critical hope. Um, I don't mean like kind of this hokey hope of like everything's going to get better soon, but I think there is really this reality around critical hope that I'm holding on to these days and I'm holding on to it with other people who are really committed to doing radical pedagogy, critical pedagogy, um, and, and making educa educational spaces as liberatory as, as it can be. So yeah, yes. I think that's what I'd leave people with. So hope is a verb too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this is so important. And um, I want to keep doing podcasts on transpedagogies because it's going to be an evolving field and really, really important because it is one of the marginalized pedagogies, I mm. think. Uh, yeah. People are seeking you know methods and tricks in the classroom but this is some real um you know calling us to accountability so i appreciate it so thank yeah. you my pleasure yeah thank you